Grab your Bibles, please, if you have those, and find Romans chapter 14. While you're looking for that, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, before Easter, before the Revelation series, before Christmas, and before Advent, we were in the book of Romans. Do you remember that? Long, long ago. In fact, the last time we were in Romans was the Sunday after the flood on November the 15th. And if you don't recall what we were looking at that morning, God in its, his perfect timing, in his sovereignty, he saw fit for us to be prepared to open up to Romans chapter 13. And here's what that chapter, just as kind of a, a refresher as we enter into Romans 14 this morning, what we learned is that God is sovereign over all things. And that tragedy never gets the final word for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we learn that uh, God loves us deeply, that his promises are ultimately true, and that his promises will be fulfilled. And for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for us because Christ has defeated the grave because of everything that we learned last week, that Jesus not only died on the cross, but on the third day he rose again. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, as he's walking through the Romans road, he says, Christ's death is your death. And Christ's resurrection is also your resurrection. And he will make all things new in his creation that he has made good, and in your life too. And so God is working all things together for his glory and for your good, and you can bring that to the bank. And all of that was unveiled for us on that very difficult Sunday morning. And I reviewed the Heidelberg Catechism with you, these words, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Well, the answer... We can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And with respect to the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in all of creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So that's what we were looking at the last time we were in Romans. So this is the picture that Paul is seeking to unveil for us. He's been doing it for 13 straight chapters. God is in control. God loves his children. God is sovereign over all things. And he is relentless in pursuing you. He is relentless in his ambition to come after you. And so that's where we left off, and here's where we get to see how our salvation in Jesus, the relationship that we have with him, is now going to permeate throughout the rest of the world in the relationships that we have. So in many respects, the first 12 chapters of this book have to do with our vertical relationship with God, and the rest of the book that he's going to outline for us is outlining all of our horizontal relationships with one another, the, the so what of everything that we've been learning. Now that we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, how does that impact our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our work, our disagreements, the things that we care deeply about but someone else might disagree with us on those matters? How do we deal with this stuff? Well, that's what we get to look at today. 
And so there's two things I want to outline for you. These are the presuppositions that you need to know before we read Romans 14, verse 1. Here's the first one that I put in your note sheet. It takes a church to raise a Christian. It takes a church to raise a Christian. Paul says, all of you are going to make up this thing called the church. It's where I want you to be. Your Christian faith, it's not just a me and Jesus relationship. It is inviting you to so much more. If God's going to invite you into the household of faith, if he's going to adopt you into his family, then he he wants you to get along with his kids. He wants us to get along with one another and to do life together in serious, tangible ways. And right on the heels of that, number two, here's what you got to know. Churches are messy. Churches are messy. Can I get an amen on that? Like Paul says, all of you are going to make up this thing called family. And if you know family, they're messy. Like anyone here come from a, a perfect family? Things going well. Never disagree. Never argue with each other. Things are just perfect. Anyone? 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 That's the way that it is in the church as well. All of us have disagreements. All of us have arguments. And so in light of these realities, there's, there's two things that I really feel compelled to just kind of lay at your feet this morning. And here's the first one. There's, um, there's a lot of new faces here this morning, uh, which I think is absolutely amazing. But whether you are a member or a regular attender, or maybe you're here for the very first time, here's the encouragement that I want to give to all of you. I want to challenge you to take that next step of obedience, whatever it is. For some of you, it might be the choice to get baptized. You, you believe in Jesus Christ, it's time to take that next step. For others of you, it might be a choice to step in and become a member of this church and profess your faith. For others of you, it might be a choice to say, you know what, I've been a member a long, long time, but it's been hard for me to take that next step to serve, to use my gifts, to tithe, to enter into small groups where I can enter into mutual accountability. Whatever it is, I want to challenge you. Take that next step of obedience. And here's the second thing I want to lay at your feet. If we're going to be the kind of church that is biblically serious, that whenever the Bible says jump, we say how high, And we're going to do that in the context of community, the 66 roughly one another commands of Scripture, that we are to live out our faith in fear and trembling in the context of community as we live out the Great Commission. If we're going to do those three things really well, then I want to lay it before you, church is going to be messy. We should always be kind of grimy around the edges, And if ever we get to a place in which there's like, we're just filled with super moral people with a lot of starch around the collar, then I'm going to get nervous because here's what that means. It means we're not living out our mission. It means that we're not actively seeking the good and the welfare of our community. It means that we're not actively sharing our faith with those who are on the outside. And so if, if we are living out our calling fully as a church, then then it should be uncomfortable. It should be messy. It should be challenging. And speaking of messy, I want you now to look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1 with me. Here's what it says. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Disputable matters. You see that there? Here's what I want you to do. Circle it. Highlight it. Underline it, 
squiggly market, have arrows pointing toward it with a big circle saying, hashtag, this is really important. Disputable matters. Everything that we're going to be looking at this morning is the disputable matters. You know, you know what those things are, right? You know what disputable things are? Those are matters which are disputable. You're welcome. Disputable matters. So these aren't the slam dunk cases, but it's also the things that are not worthy of dispute, right? Like who's the better musician, Beethoven or Mozart? Or what do you want to have for supper tonight, steak or pizza? I have an opinion, but we'll leave it at that. Or like who's the better hockey team, the Canucks or any other team? These are the disputable matters. The church is filled with disputable matters, isn't it? Things that we disagree with, things we like to argue about, opinions we might have. Does anyone here have opinions? I have opinions. Just me, okay, just me. And so these are the things that produce a visceral reaction, things that may be of great importance to us that we wish were slam-dunk issues, but they're not. But they're tied to theological truths. They're, they're tied to things that we find to be especially important. So that's what we're looking at today. And Paul even gives us an example of this. Look at verse 2. He says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So kids, hot tip for you, everyone upstairs. Whenever your parents tell you to eat your vegetables, you just proclaim with a loud voice, Romans 14, verse 2, no more broccoli. And you let me know how that goes. I want to get the updates. But let me show you, here's what's actually going on here. 2,000 years ago, there were churches in Corinth, that's where Paul is writing the book of Romans, and churches in Rome who were filled with both Jewish Christians and Gentile, non-Jew Christians, and there was a topic that was producing a visceral reaction. We have Jewish Christians who are saying, you still need to follow the kosher food laws that are outlined in the Old Testament. By the way, this was written in somewhere in the early 50s, 50 AD, which is less than 20 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So it's not long after that. The New Testament hasn't even been written yet. All they have is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you can take note of this and look at it later. Deuteronomy chapter 14, Leviticus chapter 11, chapter 14. Look at the surrounding context. There are very clear outlines as to what they had to do. So Jewish Christians are saying, we got to follow the Mosaic covenant laws, the kosher food laws. Meanwhile, Gentile Christians are saying, no, we don't have to follow any of that. We know that we have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. And if you know your Bible, Jewish Christian, you know what has been outlined by Luke in Acts chapter 10 and 11, that God has made good and we will not condemn what God has made good. So I'm going to eat meat. I'm going to have a Baconator if I want to. And a fight ensues. They're all arguing with one another. And it wasn't long before each group was regarding the other group with great suspicion. Doubting their motives. Doubting whether or not they actually had a true faith and a true allegiance to God. And whether or not they were truly living out their faith as a God-fearing Christian. 
And so they were ruining their opinions of those on the other side, and they were also ruining their opinion of the church from every onlooker who was looking in saying, what's going on? Not that we would know anything about that. So here's what I want you to take note of this morning, something that I think we as Canadian Christians just need to really look hard at. Like, Canadian Christians, they might look at this particular issue, and they might laugh. They might say, what a silly thing to get bent out of shape about. What a silly thing to split a church over. What a silly thing to leave a church over. I would never let something like mass, I mean meat, get in the way of the church that I love. That's where we've been. That's very applicable to what we're dealing with today. And I think it should break our hearts. I'm very proud of Gateway for the way that we have navigated the last two years. But it has harmed the church. And that's the context here. It's exactly what you see. So I want you to notice something. This is super, super important. That with respect to the dispute that they're dealing with here, there were genuine, spiritual, theological, foundational truths that they were struggling with. These were not abstract issues. They were issues with all sorts of theological baggage that they said, this is important. This is like super important. And you have Jewish Christians, they see it as a matter of being fully committed to Scripture. And we think that way. We say whenever the Bible says jump, we say how high. They want to defend and uphold Scripture. Gentile Christians, they're looking at it and they're saying, you know what? God has made this good. Don't you see what the Apostle Peter has communicated to us? God has made this good through the fulfilled death and resurrection of Jesus. And then Jewish Christians, they would return with this. They would say, okay, all right. Even if I did fully believe that, which we're still questioning, do you not know that all the meat that comes through the marketplace is first sacrificed to false idols? And so if you're going to eat this meat, how do you not know whether or not you are being complicit in Satan worship? And the battle ensues. So, like, we can't look at this issue and say, what a silly thing to get mad about. These were deeply ingrained theological issues. And yet, Paul is using it as the quintessential example for how we should treat all disputable matters. That's what I think is so profound about this chapter and deeply applicable even to our lives 2,000 years later. And that's why I think it's worthy of our time to look at this. So here's what happened. Those who refused to keep kosher snickered at those immature Christians, those Jewish Christians, those uptight folks who are worried about silly things like eating pork. How quaint, how childish. And on the other hand, Jewish Christians found plenty of cause to look down on others. How dare they live such casual lives? Don't they care about their neighbor? Don't they care about the law? Don't they care about scripture? Are you even a Christian if you can read this in scripture and still choose a different path? Don't you know anything? And here's the end result. The church split. The church tore in two. They couldn't even have potlucks together anymore. Someone would come with a casserole dish. They'd unwrap it. Scalp potatoes. We all like scalp potatoes with bacon. 
And instantly a fight breaks out. Why did you bring that? Jewish Christians are offended because you would put bacon in the scalp potatoes and you have Gentile Christians who are saying they're offended because you're offended. Like, what do you get offended about that for? Just eat something else. Let us have what we want. You have what you want. Let's just go our separate ways. Don't get bent out of shape. And yet the thought ensued and the church was harmed on account of it. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God accepted them. This is important. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. They're able to stand. So he's saying, let me tell you, there are going to be a lot of things in the church where you're going to go, um, I don't know, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I agree with that. Like, some of you are old enough to remember the worship wars. Remember the worship wars? I remember where I was when I was 13, in, in the church that I was a part of at the time. And youth group led worship that morning. And they used drums. I know. I know. And so they led worship. And then the, the pastor got up and gave kind of a rhetorical, what do you think? Hoping that the whole congregation would, would clap and cheer and celebrate that their children had led them in worship. But before anyone could say anything at all, do you know what happened? Someone screamed out in a loud voice, Satan worship! Everyone was struck down. Or, or what happens if um, someone comes in from the street and, and they smell terrible? Or they got tattoos up and down their arms? Or someone joins your life group and you find out that they have a pain-filled past? Things that they've been struggling with? Multiple marriages, multiple divorces? What are we going to do when things get messy? What are we going to do when we start disagreeing with one another on disputable matters and Paul wants to teach us how to do that really well how are we going to deal with these disputable matters so here's what I want you to see in your note sheet three things that I think Paul is outlining for us but I'm going to put it in gateway's name these are the things that we are aspiring to be and to do with regard to all the disputable matters that we could ever face that we could ever encounter. Do we do this perfectly? No way. But we fall forward. We want to fall forward on these things. Here's the first one. How does Gateway navigate disputable matters? Number one, we accept all Christians regardless of their spiritual maturity. Regardless of their spiritual maturity. There's um, an interesting thing that we sometimes do in, in, in church world that Paul's addressing here. For those of us who have been Christians like for a really long time, for multiple years, perhaps even multiple decades, one of the dangers, spiritually speaking, is we can forget what it was like to live into our faith at the very beginning. When we were making these kind of marginal gains, those incremental steps toward an active, obedient lifestyle with Jesus. Looking at his law, saying these are the things that we need to abstain from. Or making those choices to serve, to tithe, to commit, to enter into accountability. All of these things. We might forget what it was like at first 
to take those little baby steps. But the thing that I find so interesting about this letter, as I mentioned already, it was written in the early 50s. Do you know what the oldest Christian, um, how long they had been following Jesus for was? Less than 20 years. So by definition, almost everyone in this church are baby Christians. And what do we do with babies? We saw two beautiful babies this morning, Stan and Elizabeth. Do you have expectations that they clean their rooms? That they make dishes? They clean the dishes, do those kinds of things. We don't have expectations for babies. Like from a utilitarian perspective, they're useless. They're beautiful, but they're totally useless, right? What do they do? Burp, fart, eat, cry, snort, wake you up in the middle of the night? You look great. You're looking really good. Like we get tired. There's just nothing that they contribute to. And in fact, like parents, think about this. When, when your kids are small, little tiny babies, and you see them, they're lying on their back, and they start like rolling over a little bit, what do you do? You go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, come on inside, get the camera, get the camera, look at this, oh, they're going to turn over. And they just like, they're like not even almost turning over, right? They're just moving a little bit. You got hours of footage of it. Right? You put it on Facebook. Look, everybody, my baby, my beautiful baby, almost turned over. The whole world needs to know. We celebrate the marginal gains. Don't we? We're so excited. We, we don't have these crazy expectations of our infant children in the same way. That's how we should be. Or, or have, you, have anyone, uh, any of you ever watched The Biggest Loser? Right? So you, you have um, these, these folks who have struggled with their their weight for many, many years. And they're invited into this kind of boot camp of sorts where they learn how to uh, eat healthy and have healthy regiments and exercise, right? And there might be someone who's never done this before and they're holding a bar with no weight on it. It's like 35 pounds and they're struggling with all their might. We don't, we don't laugh at it. We're excited. We're cheering them on. And you got the cheerleaders, the coaches who are there. They're like, you can do it. You can do it. We celebrate the marginal gains. The same should go for us, Gateway, with respect to how we treat people who, in a spiritual sense, are weaker than ourselves, who are trying their very best to learn about what it means to follow Jesus in obedience. And so if we don't have outlandish and crazy expectations of our infant children or of those who are just starting a new exercise regimen, then we shouldn't have the same expectations of weaker Christians of baby Christians, of those who are still trying to take that next step of obedience. And so here's a question that, that I want to ask. Why should we do this? Why should we be so accommodating to those who are new to their faith or those who are learning about taking the next step of obedience or those who might have more sensitive consciences or those with whom we might disagree? We might say, Scripture is clear, but very clearly they don't think the same way that I do. I love the way that Alistair Begg explains this. Maybe some of you have seen this video before. It's gone around a lot. But he, he basically is talking about the thief on the cross. And he puts it this way. He says, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how did that, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing out Jesus with your friend. You were never in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You don't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. 
he goes on, like, how did you make it? And then he has this idea of, like, you know, you have the angel who's standing at the pearly gates, right? And, and they ask the question, like, what is your understanding of the doctrine of atonement? He goes, well, I don't know. Uh, you don't know? I'm, okay, I'll have to get my supervisor angel. And supervisor angel, he comes up and he says, well, do you know the, the doctrine of salvation? Never heard of it. Do you know the doctrine of the Trinity? Never heard of it. The doctrine of justification, sanctification? No, I don't know it. What about the five solas? Do you know that? No, I don't know that. So then he asks, on what possible basis can, can I let you in? And he says this. The man on the middle cross said I can come. The man on the middle cross said I can come. Friends, that's the only answer that we can give. That's the only thing that we can say. And it's also the reason why this teaching doesn't happen in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. It, it happens in Romans chapter 14. After we put first things first. After we understand the nature by which we have new life. How do we do that? Through your own good deeds? Through your excellent behavior? Through making sure that you are correct on all the right theological issues? Is that what gets you into glory? No. We see that the only way that we can be saved is through Jesus. And so like the thief on the cross, if ever we are asked, like, how do, how do you get in? We say, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. What's that hymn that we sing a lot before the throne of God above? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. To pardon me. Gateway, we need to be the kind of church where the thief on the cross would feel welcome. Where the thief on the cross would feel welcome. Like if you ever find someone who's really grimy around the edges, we better do everything our that we can to put our arms around that person to say, I love you, God loves you, and you're in the right place. The church was built for you. Come on in. That's the type of church that we need to be. Paul says, your church is going to be filled with people who are weaker, Maybe they're new believers. Maybe they're people with sensitive consciences. Maybe they're people who bring in baggage. Maybe they're people who are currently living in sin. Or maybe they're people who are like the Pharisees and they are living in their self-righteous judgment and justification. And to all of them, all of them and everyone in between, we should wrap our arms around them and say, welcome, you are in the right place. This is the place where we can work out our faith in fear and in trembling. Look again at your Bibles at verse 5. He says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so unto the Lord. Circle, highlight, underline. Whoever eats meat does so unto the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. 
For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying you should be convinced in your own mind of what is good for you on disputable matters. But there should also be room for you to disagree and to disagree well. There should be room in, in the family of faith for us to say, I disagree with you and I love you. And we can, we can still have potlucks together. We can still enjoy a good meal together. We can still worship together, even in the midst of our disagreements, that the unity of the church would not be harmed on account of our disagreement on disputable matters. And then, and then he continues, verse 10, in the same theme. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your own mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. So here's the way I put this in your note sheet. Number two, we never use our freedom to judge another believer. We never use our freedom to judge another believer. Like, he, he says it here. Listen, you're going to stand before the judge one day. And, if, if this is helpful for you to think about, so is your neighbor. And you make a terrible stand-in as judge for God. Let that be God's He's the judge, not you. And so follow what God says and to the best of your ability, live at peace with your neighbor. I got to stop here. Quick tangent. This does not mean there's never an appropriate place for us to enter into mutual edification and even to make judgments with our fellow Christians. In fact, scripture demands it. In the 66 one another commands of scripture, God clearly says that we are to admonish and to rebuke one another, but we're always to do it in love. And we're going to talk in a little bit what that looks like to do that really, really well. But with respect to these disputable matters, disagree. That is okay. It is encouraged for you to live out your faith in fear and trembling and to seek to honor scripture as you understand it. But let there be room for unity of the church. And so here's maybe a, a way of thinking about this. Let's just kind of talk about disputable matters and then the indisputable matters, the ones that are slam dunk cases. We'll talk about both of them and how we should interact with each other on them. So disputable matters. Be careful not to judge your brother or sister. That's exactly what the Pharisees did, right? What did they do? They took the law of God, the fence of God, and then they built fences around God's fences. And you can even understand within that, their desire was to make sure that no one came even close to not following the law of God. You understand their heart in it. And yet, it led their hearts to being cold. And by the time Jesus came, he called them scorpions and snakes. But then number two, with respect to topics that are not disputable, I hope you hear this, you better take on a posture of persuasion and not warfare. We better take on a posture of persuasion and not warfare. 
I, I don't think God's going to be pleased if we get up to the pearly gates, if we get up to heaven, and we, we go to him, we say, God, good news, I have a flawless and perfect track record with regard to debating other people with whom I disagreed. I just owned them. I destroyed them. I did such a good job defending all the theological truths. I understood everything that the Bible says. I maneuvered everything that they said, and I won the argument. Do you know what God's going to say to that? He's going to say, you mean the very people I intended for you to disciple and to care for and to serve and to come underneath so that they would know the love that I have for them? You mean those people? And so here again, the motivation and the posture should always be persuasion and never warfare. But here's where it actually gets really difficult. Look at verse 13. He says this, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of another brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by eating, destroy someone from whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to make mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink or, or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or your sister to fall. So here's the point. Always... Or sorry, point number three. We always sacrifice our own freedom for the faith of another. We always sacrifice our own freedom for the faith of another. Always be willing to sacrifice your own freedom for the faith of someone else. Like, do you see just how profound of a teaching this is? Do you see just how applicable this is to our lives today and entering into the future? So let's just give a couple examples of this. Let's suppose that you have a friend who's coming over for dinner and he's a vegetarian. What, what do you do? Do you like invite them up the stairs? You have the fine china out. You have like the beautiful drape over top. You got the candles out. And then you say, devotions this afternoon is, oh, Acts chapter 10. That's interesting. Let's, let's read that together. Oh, the sheet comes down. And we see that meat is now declared good, and what God has made good, we ought not condemn. Amen. T-bone steak for dinner tonight. We're, good. We're not going to do that. What do we do? We honor them. We, we come underneath them. You make them the best vegetarian dinner you've ever made. You come underneath them and honor them. You bless them. Or what if you have a friend who uh, has chosen to abstain from drinking alcohol? 
But your opinion on this is as long as I don't get drunk, as long as I don't cross that line and I, I drink within moderation, we can have a good time, we can have a glass of wine, we can have a beer. But her opinion is every single person I've ever known has abused this. I've looked at my parents, I've looked at my grandparents, I've looked even at myself. Maybe I, I'm a struggling alcoholic and I'm just trying to live in obedience. What do you do? You put the booze away. That's what you do. You honor them. You serve them. You make yourself less for the sake of your neighbor. And Paul, he goes as, as far to say, apart from sin, I will become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. We have freedom in Jesus Christ. Absolutely we do. But with respect to this principle, we take our freedom and we take on the nature of a servant just like Jesus has done for us. Just like he has commanded us to do. And I think this is so incredibly important with respect to where we are as Christians in Canada today. Because I don't think it's a surprise to you. Like, you look all around, what do you see? Posturing for position? Fighting? The creating of sides? Big walls going up? Throwing daggers and bombs over to the other side? Constant pontificating and yelling at each other? That's what we see in our society. And yet God is trying to show us something beautiful, a very different way to enter into these relationships to say, I have great opinions on these things, but I'm going to choose to come underneath you and to serve you so that I might become less, so that Christ might increase, and you might see the radiance of the glory of Jesus. I'm always willing to sacrifice my own wants, my own dreams, my own wants and desires and motives and goals for the sake of what Christ would have me do. So here's, here's kind of where I want to land the plane this morning. I want to ask the question, how do we navigate the indisputable matters? We've been talking about the disputable matters, right? It should be a posture of persuasion. We should care for one another. We should come underneath them. We should be willing to become less for them. But what about those matters with which we can't let go of? Like, we got we to gotta take that stand at some place. We got to make sure that Scripture is upheld and fulfilled in our life, what do we do with the indisputable matters? Very quickly, I want to walk you through the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Number one, who? Fellow Christians. Fellow Christians. We should never judge a non-Christian by Christian standards. They don't follow our leader. Why would they follow his rules? And last I checked... It is only through what we call the doctrine of sanctification. Our conversion is that moment in which the Holy Spirit comes into our life, changes us from the inside out, so that we begin to look and act more and more like Jesus. So if they don't know Jesus yet, how can we expect the fruit of Jesus to be within them? And so if you know someone who's not a Christian, and they're debating with you on things, I know what I want to do. I want to introduce them to Jesus. Not to debate with them on, on some abstract theological issue, but with respect to Christians, in a spirit of love, I'd be willing to have those conversations. Number two, what? Clear sins, not gray areas. Clear sins, not gray areas. So what are those, Justin? What are the clear sins? Well, he actually has already outlined them for us. If your Bibles are open, Romans 1, 29 to 31. Here's what he says. 
with respect to people who say they're believers, but they're living in sin. He says, they've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, full of murder, strife, deceit, malice. What a list. Then he says, they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. With respect to those type of issues that are indisputable, we would enter into those. But then how? What's the posture that we take? Number three, where? In private. In private. Matthew chapter 18 defines how, that, how we should do this. Not publicly for the whole world to see, and in that way to harm their reputation, but with the door closed, we come alongside them and we say, you know that I love you. You know that I care for you as brothers in the Lord, as sisters in the Lord, as, as a faith family. I want, I want to come alongside you. You do it in private. When? Before speaking to anyone else. <laughs> That's when. So here, here's kind of the, the problem in church world. We don't gossip. We make prayer requests. We, uh, we don't slander. We just share our concerns widely. Right? We, we don't have bitterness and unforgiveness. We just hide it under a rug until it explodes. And so what scripture is saying here is before you talk to anyone else, you go with the door closed. And before talking to anyone else, and not talking to anyone else at all, except for the, pe- the person with whom you have a disagreement or a concern for. And then finally, why and how to save a person. To save a person. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this, My brothers and sisters, whoever turns a sinner away from their error, the error of their way, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So here's what you do. You go up to that brother or your sister with the door closed, having not talked to anyone else, and you tell them, I love you. I care about you. And maybe you're even in a position to say something along the lines of, I've been there before. I've gone down that path, and I know where it goes. And I love you enough to tell you, I don't think that's a good path. And I am fully committed to walking with you in this, if you would let me. So, can I share a comment with you? Can I I share a concern with you? Can I walk with you in this? With hands opened, with a posture of openness, so that they might be receptive to the teaching, to the rebuke that you would want to share with them, but always in love always in love. This is the way that Paul teaches us to deal with our disagreements. So how can we have the courage and the strength to have this kind of posture? How can we possibly remember to act this way with regard to our disagreements, whether they're disputable matters or the slam dunk indisputable matters? Well, we can't, not on our own strength. Here's the only way that we'll be able to do it. If our eyes are fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ. If we remember the truth that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. He put your best foot forward when you were still spitting in his face. And because that's true, it should humble our hearts, it should raise our affection for Jesus, and it should motivate us for the right way on how to address the concerns that we have for our neighbors 
and the disagreements that we share. Remember what Alistair Begg and the angel said to this thief on the cross. How did you make it? Do you know the doctrine of justification? Do you know the doctrine of sanctification? Do you know all the theological truths? Do you know the five solas? No, I don't. I don't know these things. On what possible basis could you come in? The man on the middle cross said, I can come. Gateway, let that change our hearts so that we can be motivated to do good even in the midst of our disagreements. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for this profound word of truth that you have seen fit to communicate to Paul that he would write down for our benefit even 2,000 years later. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us with the power of your Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to mold us and fashion us and shape us anew so that we might reflect the radiance of Jesus and that even in the midst of our disagreements, we might be willing to come underneath our brothers and sisters in love, in mutual submission, and in humble service so that we can bring them back from the error of their ways. Lord, you know we don't do this perfectly, nowhere near, but we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do a good work in us, and we ask that it would be so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.